Take your Bibles this morning as we begin. Make your way to the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 5. Numbers, chapter 5. I doubt many of you did your devotions in Numbers this, this week. Um, but it is a great, it is a great uh, book. It is 36 chapters, 1,288 verses. Um, it is a book of sand and history. <laughs> There's a lot of sand in here as the children of Israel are, are, are uh, wandering and getting, getting life together and trying to figure out how to obey God's law. Um, it's full of history. Now, as Americans, this is terrible, but it's true. We don't like history. Uh, the patron saint of America, Henry Ford, said history is bunk. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, one historian, not an American, said that, said that war is God's way of teaching Americans history and geography. <laughs> Isn't that true? And actually, it's not a bad way to learn history and geography. But history is important. Um, and honestly, the history that we find in the book of Numbers, which is an historical book, you could boil it down basically to this, is people behaving badly. I mean, the, the children of Israel just couldn't get it together. And as you read, we're going to see a little bit this morning, and we're going to be in Leviticus a little bit. I'm going to show you some stuff. There's a lot of weird stuff in here. There's some bizarre rituals. There's some apparently really harsh rules and laws and these stories in here, they just don't seem connected to anything that we understand today. But I want to caution you in that. There is a divine logic inherent in the book of Numbers. And it teaches us about God. It teaches us about ourselves. And maybe most importantly, it, it teaches us about Christ our Savior. And you can find that. In the Old Testament, I've entitled this sermon today, The Severity of Grace. Now, when you think of, when you think of grace, you don't think of severe, do you? You know, you think, of, well, grace is the relief. The law is what's severe. Well, I, I, I would push back against that a little bit. I think grace is severe when we understand it in its full orb. And we're going to see the severe grace of God through his law today. And how that teaches us about God, about ourselves, and about our Savior. And all of these accounts are written for our benefit. Paul tells us that. You might want to jot this down in your outline. In 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to read you two verses, 6 and 11. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says. Paul says this, now these things, talking about the history of, the Old Testament saints. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. How many of you would rather learn from somebody else's mistake than your own? Right? That's what Paul's saying. And then in verse uh, number 11, he kind of says the same thing with a little bit different words. He says, now all these things happen to them who are Old Testament counterparts as what? Examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
So what you're about to hear is written for your encouragement. And I'm so glad that they went through that so we don't have to. But maybe we can learn today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hear the word of the Lord out of Numbers 5 today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you uh, just asking for your help, asking you to uh, give us ears to hear your word today and hearts to receive it with joy and courage to apply it ruthlessly to our life. May we come to embrace the severity of your grace and understand it in light of your word. And most importantly of all, may you be glorified by what is said and done here today. And may our hearts be fertile ground, the germination of your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Here's God's word in Numbers chapter 5. Here's what it says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, here's God's command for these wandering peoples. Command the children of Israel that they, what does these two words say? Put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever has become defiled by a corpse. So anyone that's a leper, anyone that has a, a discharge, a bodily discharge, an infectious discharge, and anyone that's touched a, a dead body, outside the camp you go. That's pretty harsh. Verse 3. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they might, may not defile their camps. Now notice this. In the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel, this is amazing, did so. I want you to think about that for a minute. We're going to talk about that in a second. And they put them outside the camp. As the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Wow. Isn't that something? So God gives Moses these commands. And I don't know about you, at first blush, don't they seem kind of harsh? It's hard stuff. Seems severe. But you're a faithful Israelite. And you're you what have you just been rescued from? Four hundred plus years of slavery. Just so at this point, you're pretty grateful, aren't you? And has God done some absolutely stunning things for you? You stood on the shore of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind you, not very happy people, intent upon your utter destruction, the Red Sea in front of you, and you watched that thing open up, and you walked through it on dry ground. And then you watched Pharaoh's army follow and be drowned in the sea. You saw God do some amazing things, and you love him for it, and you obey him, and you're thankful for that deliverance. But through no fault of your own, you have an infection or or you have leprosy or you've come into contact with a dead body and you are expelled from the camp and at first blush that seems very unloving not caring doesn't seem very kind of God at all so the question we got to ask ourselves is what is God saying here what is he teaching what could possibly be God's purpose in such a severe law I want to submit to you today, and with that, we'll have our, our teaching. 
I think there are, are three things specifically. Ben, you can grab that. I think there, there is a practical purpose. I think there is a theological purpose. And I think there is a Christological purpose in these, on face values, severe graces of God through his law. So let me just deal with the practical first. Here's the practical purposes. Now, we don't really know for sure how many people came out of that exodus. We know it was a lot. Um, historians will differ um, between two and a half million to five million, because there were a lot of, there were actually a lot of Egyptians that came with them that converted. Um, so two and a half to five million, that's a lot of folks. Not living in homes, living in tents. Can you imagine going on a camping trip with two and a half million of your best friends? Um, th this, yeah, absolutely. This is ripe for disaster. And if you let one, you let one infectious disease come into that camp, and you could literally wipe out tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people overnight. There were no antibiotics, no advances in modern medicine. I mean, contact with a discharge or leprosy or a dead body could have caused the immediate spread of disease. So there's a practical purpose here. And the only way to deal with such things is through quarantine. Now, I want you to notice something. You say, you know, I, I wish God's word would, would speak to this, this uh, COVID dilemma that we're in. It does. Notice who's quarantined here. It's not the healthy. It's the sick that are quarantined. I think God's setting a pattern there for us. And I think as believers, we need to wake up to what that pattern is. God set the original design. These rules have a practical purpose. You quarantine the sick, not the healthy. It was the sick that was put outside of the camp. So we see that there's a practical reason. John Calvin said this about this section of scripture. He said, God was not merely acting as a physician here. He had something to teach us through these laws. And through these laws, God is being right and wise and just and even kind, even though they seem very severe on the surface. And they do. I think also that these laws have a theological purpose. They teach us something about God. Actually, it teaches three things that I can see, right? And these are just laying on the top of the text. You don't have to dig deep. It teaches us that God is holy, that God is present, and that God has spoken. So let's deal with those briefly. Number one, God is holy. <coughs> and we see this in this scripture. These defilement, and that's what they're called, defilement laws of Numbers and Deuteronomy speak of a God, listen to this, who is undefiled. And here's the backside of that. And he does not dwell with people who are defiled. You see that? That doesn't get talked about a lot today. In verse 3, it's very clear if you have your scriptures open. It, it, he says in there, God says in there, so that they will not defile the camp where I, what? Dwell. God says, I'm here with you. I'm in the midst of you, and I am holy. And if I'm going to dwell here, those who are defiled cannot dwell with me. And there's a practical reason for that, but there's a theological reason for that as well. They are defiled. I am not. One of us is leaving. Do you see it? Do you see that dilemma? 
And by the way, sin in the law of Moses is called transgression. Trans, you should know that word, it means across. It literally means to step across the line. God said, here's the line. Don't step across it. But we do. We step across that line. Uh, we don't do what he tells us to do, or we do what he tells us not to do. Amen? And that's stepping across God's line. But here's the thing I think we've forgotten as God's people, as the church of God today. And I want you to hear it clearly. Sin defiles. Sin makes us impure and unholy. And there's a problem with that because God is what? Holy. He's holy. And he said, I will not, I cannot, I must not dwell amidst people who are defiled. So it brings about these laws of exclusion, these severe graces of God. And we get a real uh, graphic picture of what defilement does in relation to God. And brothers and sisters, we don't think about that enough. I mean, let's go back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. We talked about it in the D group this morning. One rule, one law, and only one, and they broke the one law. And they didn't even have the pull to sin that you and I have in the flesh. They didn't even have that pull, and they broke the one law. What happens next? What's God say? You're out. They're exiled. They are literally exiled from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And just so they understand that God's not playing, he sticks an angel at the entrance with a flaming sword. Just, just in case you think you're going to sneak back in here, you're not. It's exclusion. It's banishment. And here's the problem. Brothers and sisters, sin leads to eternal banishment from God. Because God is undefiled. And sin always defiles. Jot this down, Revelation 21 and verse 27. Look what John the Revelator says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, but there shall by no means enter into it. That's talking about uh, heaven, the new Jerusalem. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that, what's the first word there? Defiles. What does sin do, church? It defiles. Or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those whose names are, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean, nothing detestable, and nothing false. This points to this moral defilement. And the Bible is very clear. This excludes us eternally from the presence of God. And by the way, God doesn't play favorites. Even Moses' sister, Miriam, was excluded from the camp. When she reached out her hand against God's mediator, God's man, Moses, because God is holy. God struck her with leprosy and right outside the camp she went. Even though she was a prophetess, even though she led Israel in the worship of God after that Red Sea escape, didn't matter. God does not play favorites. Outside the camp she went. God is holy. Here's a second thing right out of the text that I think we can see pretty clearly is that God is present. God is present. He says in there, in the midst of which I dwell. God was in the middle of his people. He's present with his people in the camp. And, and as we read further through, through Numbers, you, you'll come across this discussion. I mean, God just gets fed up with these people. Can you imagine two and a half million Jews and you're in charge of all of them? 
Moses is right there with God. He's frustrated. But, but, but God, these people just are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And God finally says, he finally says to Moses, the most fascinating account, he, he basically says to Moses, all right, he said, I'm going to just destroy them all. Moses said, we can't do that. God said, okay, I'm not going to destroy them, and you all can go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I'm, you know, and right now he's present with them in the camp. He said, fine, you can, I won't destroy you all. You can go, but I'm not going. And you know what Moses' response is? Then kill us now. Kill every one of us now. Because we're not going without you. If you're not with us, we don't even want to live. You're our portion, Moses is telling God. You are what we want. Not the promised land. We want the promise giver and the promise keeper. The land is just a bonus. You know what he's saying? Is he saying what we don't hear enough from our own hearts today? He's saying, God, I don't want your blessings. I want you. That is not what the church is saying today. Matter of fact, I, I really believe that we would answer that differently today. I don't think we'd answer it like Moses. Even David wanted to build this grand temple for God. And what did God say? He said, hey, I dwell with my people in the midst of the camp in a tent. <laughs> Expensive tent, mind you, but it was a tent. God said, look, this is the way I've always done it. I'm right in the middle of them. I don't need this big temple. I'm what matters. It's the fact that I'm present with them is what matters. I really think that if God gave us that option today that he gave Moses, most believers would take it. You mean I'm going to have all your blessings and not you? Sign me up. And, and I know we say, oh, I would never do that. We do it every single day. I preached a few weeks ago on idols. Let me tell you, the, the best material for idols are God's greatest blessings in your life. You can make an idol out of your family. I've seen it happen. You can make an idol out of your work as God prospers you. I've seen it happen. You can, the blessings of God make the best idols because we come to serve and seek the blessing and we reject the blessing giver. Moses said, hey, if you're not going, we don't even want to live. Not only do we not want to go, we don't want to live. In that system... The sacrificial animals were taken outside the camp, the bodies, because they're defiled. They're, they're refuse. Those who were ritually defiled had to go outside the camp. Why? Because God dwelt inside the camp. Even when they sacrificed those animals, the leftovers were taken outside the camp because those sacrifices for sin now became defiled from the sin that they paid for. And they had to be removed from the presence because God was in the midst of them. Even Isaiah cries out to Judah, your sins have separated you from your God. And all defilement is banished from God's presence. And I want to say something to you today. If you're a saint, if you're a born-again child of God, you cannot have your sin and your Savior too. The two will not get along. They will not mix. And there's been a lot of bad teaching over the years that tramples on grace instead of triumphs in grace. 
Triumphing in grace is becoming so sensitive about your sin that when you roll through a stop sign, your heart breaks and you have to turn, pull over and repent. That's when you know that God's spirit is on you. When you can't stand the defilement of something that we blink at in society today. Here's the last one. God is holy. God is present. But God has also spoken. He said something. God said something here. I mean, I think this one we can't roll over. Just take the Bible glasses off for a minute. We tend to read history with historical glasses on, even Bible glasses on. I call them Sunday school glasses, right? Because we know how it all ends up. But you know what? Some of this stuff was hard in the meantime. I mean, imagine Chris Hunley comes to you. She works in the hospital. She comes to you. You're in children. You're, you're in this camp. And, and she says, I got this spot on my arm, and it's white, and it won't go away. And you know what it is. And you got you to gotta take your wife and walk to the edge of the camp and watch her go into the howling wilderness of Sinai. This isn't easy. Imagine your son comes to you, your 14-year-old son, and he's got an infection that's oozing. And you got to take that kid and walk him to the edge of the camp and send him out alone. That's a severe grace at that point. But you know what amazes me? They did it. It's kind of flat in the text. But read it. And so Israel did. They obeyed. They put their loved ones outside the camp in obedience because God had spoken. And I wonder, would, would, would you have obeyed like that? Would I have obeyed like that? How many of us would have tried to hide them? Well, just keep your sleeve down. Nobody will see. We'll get some essential oils and treat it at home. <laughs> right? Just don't let anybody see. Right? That's not what they did. They obeyed God. You and I, we would try to reinterpret the verse. We would try to reinterpret the command. We said, well, in the Hebrew, what it really means is. Right? And we would just, we would just rework it so that nothing would happen. And, and we would not have to obey. Let me tell you something. There are commands in this book that are going to break your heart. They're going to. They're hard. They're severe. The question you're going to come to at that point is, are we going to make it up as we go? Or are we going to believe God? Or are we going to obey because God has said something? He has spoken. And I don't have the option of debating it. We debate way too much. Jot this down in your outline, Leviticus 15. You should check out these rules, these laws here, for someone who has been defiled by this infection. Basically, what is it? read verses 1 through 12. Everything they touch, everything they sit on, no matter what, everything that that person comes into contact is ritually unclean. And either burn it, kill it, or wash it 
by the way, and there you go. God had, when it comes to people, you had to wash your hands. Imagine that. Maybe God knows something about infectious diseases. And then outside the camp they went. <coughs> it's unclean. And because it's unclean, it has to be banished from the presence of God and God's people. When we read these laws in Leviticus 15, we see that uncleanness is contagious. By the way, sin is contagious. Amen? And it's, we are defiled by sin. And everything that we touch becomes unclean. Boy, there's a whole sermon in there that I won't get into. But oh, let me tell you, you want to talk about leadership? You become defiled by sin, heads of your homes. You think that's not going to trickle down to your family? Sin defiles. But all oh, brothers and sisters, repentance restores. We need, we need to have a severe obedience in response to this severe grace. So it has a practical purpose. It's got a theological purpose. We learn something about God. But I think this is a, a most beautiful aspect of this. It's got a Christological purpose. That's a long word for the first few letters. It teaches us something about Christ. You say, Pastor Paul, I got Numbers 5 open, but I don't see Jesus in there. He's there. He's there. But you have to run over to the New Testament. You got to go to the book of Luke. In fact, if you just find your way to Luke chapter 5, I'm going to refer to that here in just a second. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. One thing we know about Luke, anyone remember what Luke's job was? He was, yeah, he was a physician. Do you think he would have known something about infectious diseases? Do you think he would have, even though he's Gentile, do you think he would have known something about God's laws as relates to infectious diseases? You better believe he would. And he was an historian. So he would have been very familiar with this text that we just read in Numbers this morning, Numbers 5. It tells us, and it's my favorite passage of Scripture, it tells us of Christ. I love the road to Emmaus. Remember the two disciples early in the resurrection morning walking the road to Emmaus? And Jesus walks, they don't even know who he is. And the Bible says that he starts talking with them and asking them, why are you so sad? You all remember this? And they said, where have you been? <laughs> you've, been you've been under a rock? No, I've actually been in a tomb. <laughs> and the Bible says Jesus began to tell them, to preach to them everything starting with Moses and the law and the prophets. He literally goes through the Old Testament, Jesus does, and shows these disciples himself. And the prophecies and who he is. So Dr. Luke, being familiar with our text in Numbers, he, this is a, he moves in order right through it. In Luke 5, where we're going to start, verse 12, he comes into contact with someone who was a leper. Remember our text. A little bit later in Luke 8, we'll see it in a minute, he comes in contact with a woman who has a discharge of blood. Exactly what our text was about. And then later in 8, comes in contact with a dead little girl. Jairus' daughter. And Luke would have known this. Look at, look at chapter 5 and verse 12. Luke chapter 5 
And verse 12 says, And it happened while he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was, look at this, didn't just have a patch. What does it say? Full of leprosy. This guy, you know, sometimes like ears would fall off, your nose. Have you ever seen pictures? It's, it's horrible. So this guy was a disaster. I mean, he was literally falling apart, eaten up with this leprosy. Full of leprosy. Saw Jesus, and he fell on his face, and he implored, he begged him. And here's, here's what he says in the next verse. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. By the way, you know what that is? That is a statement of faith. You can see that is the, um, that's the common denominator in every one of these accounts. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now look what happens next. This is the part that's crazy. Then he, Jesus, what's he do? Put out his hand and, what's that word? Touched him. Jesus, don't touch him. Because your law says if you touch him, you become what, church? Unclean, defiled, outside the gates with you. But Jesus reaches out and he what? He touches the man. And not only does Jesus not become defiled, that which is defiled becomes clean. He is the fulfillment of the law. That's it right there. <laughs> is that just amazing? What the law could, by the way, the law had, had no prescription for what to do with a person who had leprosy. Nothing. It just said, you're out. You got to be outside. In a leper colony, can't, you can't be around people. It has some rules about how close you could get, what you had to shout, all that stuff. And it did have some rules that if Somehow, by some miracle, you were, you were healed. There were some laws about what you had to go through to make sure that you were healed, and the priest would have to give you the green light to come back to society. But the law was powerless. Hear this. The law was powerless to make a leper clean. Jesus not only touches the guy, and Jesus does not become defiled. The defiled becomes clean. And you've got to know Luke had this in mind, or at least the Holy Spirit did. Fast forward. To Luke chapter 8, just a couple pages for you, if your Bible's like mine. Go to Luke chapter 8, verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned, that the multitude welcomed him for, they were all waiting for him. Jesus was drawing crowds, his popularity had really increased. And behold, there came a man named uh, Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, so he's kind of important in Israel. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him. By the way, that's interesting. It's the second time we see that word implored or begged. Begged him to come to his house. Why does he want him to go to his house? Before he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So he's, he's Jesus, okay, I'll come with you. So he's heading that way, but look what's happened. As he went, the multitudes thronged him. They surrounded him. Right? Look at the next. This is, I love this. Now, a woman having a flow of blood. There it is. It's an issue, a bodily issue. Having a flow of blood for, don't miss this. How many years, church? How old is that little girl that's dying? Isn't that interesting? Twelve years, and she spent everything she had on the doctors and could not be healed by any. Isn't it interesting that Luke happens to include here that the health care of her day did little to help her? Some things don't change. Next verse. And she came 
from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately, her flow of blood stopped. Isn't that crazy? She's healed immediately. Say, why? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. Look at the next verse. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when Peter, when all denied it, Peter said to him, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? Now, that's nice and clean when we read it. <laughs> I don't think it was clean. I think Peter was like, are you kidding me? Everybody's touching you. We're all, we're all touching you. And Jesus said, no, not like that. He said, somebody touched me, for I perceived that power was going out from me. Somebody touched me in faith. And Jesus is going to tell her in a minute, your faith has made you whole. There's, the, there's that common component, isn't it? Here's faith again. She touched him in faith. And the gig is up. Next verse, we find out what happens. In verse 47. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, the gig was up. She came trembling and fell down before him. And she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him. It was me. Here's why. And by the way, I'm healed. I was healed immediately as soon as I touched the hem of your garment. Isn't that something? Look at Jesus' response to her. She doesn't know what he's going to say. And he said to her, he calls her daughter. That's a, that's a term of endearment. Daughter, be of good cheer. Look at this. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And I imagine as that, the, the people in that crowd knew that woman. They knew what she had. She was breaking laws by just being there. Right? And she reaches out. And, and I'm sure they were saying, don't touch him. If you touch him, you're gonna be, he's going to become defiled. She touches Jesus. Not only does he not become defiled, she which is defiled becomes clean. Are you seeing a pattern here? Well, remember, where is he headed? He's going to Jairus' house, right? To heal his daughter. Look at the next verse. So this grand thing happens. This has got to be amazing. Everybody's excited. But while Jesus is giving the good news to this woman who came to him in faith, bad news. By the way, how many of you know that bad news is almost always on the heels of good news? You ever know? You know that? Yeah. Boy, things are so good. Yep, just wait. <laughs> while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, to the ruler, to Jairus, <clears throat> your daughter's dead. She died. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, again, we read that with Bible glasses. Imagine that's you. Imagine you're that daddy. He's almost there. And this woman has to get in the way and stop him. And now my little girl's gone. Look at Jesus' response. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, Jairus, not the messenger, saying, do not be afraid. Only, what's that word, church? There's that faith component again, isn't it? Only believe and she's going to be made well. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in with him except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. So the three inner circle guys, mom and dad, and a little dead girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, don't weep. She, she's not dead, but sleeping. 
And look at this. And they ridiculed him knowing she was dead. She was dead. Now, was Jesus lying? No. Because he has the power over life and death. Remember this last part of the law? If you touch anything that is dead, a dead corpse, you're defiled. Remember this? Look what he does. But he put them all outside and he took her by the hand. Took this little dead girl's hand and called saying, little girl, arise. Talithia. And by the way, it made me laugh this morning as I was getting my, my sons up. I've noticed that I wake my sons up differently than I wake my daughters up. My sons, and I come into, the, and I was reading a text early this morning, and it was time to get them up. And I went in a room, and I, first thing I do is I turn the light on, and I say, let's go, up and at them, time to roll out, roll out, roll out, roll out. Get out of that bed, sit up, sit up, sit up. I want to see feet on that floor. Then I go into Emma's room, crack the door, don't turn on the light. And I say, Emma G, time to wake up. Come get up, little girl. Don't judge me. <laughs> and really, the way that Jesus speaks to her here is the way a, a little Jewish dad would wake up his little girl. He's literally saying to her, wake up, baby. It's time to get up. And then her spirit returned. She arose immediately and he commanded that she should be given something to eat. Isn't that beautiful? He touches a dead body. He does not become defiled. Instead, the dead body returns to life. He is the fulfillment of his own law. Physically. Luke is screaming here. If you'll see it, he is screaming. This is a mediator who can do things Moses couldn't. Who can do things that the priest could not do. He is the son of God. Why is this important to you and I? Listen to me. It's so important. Because we need to know that when we bring people to Jesus. We need to know that Jesus knows exactly what to do with them. That Jesus can touch whatever defilement is in their life. And he can make them whole. I, I witnessed that this week blew me away a friend of mine who rejected Christ rejected his faith went deep into the LGBTQ community and chased that heart broke my heart but I noticed recently he starts posting nothing but Bible verses I thought well that's odd and I reached out to him and he told me the most beautiful story of God's grace. How God woke him up to his sin. Showed him exactly what it is. What his identity was. It was not what he struggled with. That was just part of the fall and how it affected him. But that was no longer him. He was a, a child of God. And God touched that defilement and made this young man clean. And I don't even hardly know who this young man is. I was blown away just to listen he's like a completely different person why his defilement has been removed by faith and some of us we that defilement is so deep that it becomes our identity and that was one of the things that he expressed to me 
He said, I was very much in danger of my sin becoming my identity. He said, and what I've come to realize through reading God's word is that that is not my identity. That's not who I am. That is the effect of the fall, and I don't need to act on that. And some of you, that defilement is so deep, we think that God himself can't even touch that. Remember what Peter said? When Jesus filled his boat with fish, and even Peter figured it out, what's he do? He comes up to Jesus and he said, depart from me. Depart from me. For I'm a sinful man. If you've never felt that, first of all, thank God. But there are people out there that feel that. They feel that even God can't touch their defilement. God, even God can't help me. But oh, I want to tell you what, there's nobody that God cannot help. And we see that through the severity of God's grace. The question is, and then we'll be done, how did, but how did Jesus pull that off? How did this transfer work? I call it the YBH. In this church, you guys know what that means. What does YBH mean? Yeah, but how? Yeah, but how did he do that? I mean, I see that he did it, but how? The answer is in Hebrews 13. Jot that down. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 11, just a few verses, and then we'll be done. It says, for the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary. Notice that. The blood's brought in, but these bodies are left over. The blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin. Where are they burned, church? Outside the camp. Why? Because they're defiled. Don't miss it. Therefore, Jesus also. That he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Suffered where, church? outside the gate look at this next verse therefore because he did let us go forth to him where outside the camp bearing his reproach right We, we need to go outside for we have no continuing city but we seek one that's to come how does he do it how does he pull it off he went outside the camp and he bore their reproach he literally was cast out that they might be called in and what's the result of that therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name should we not be thankful we were the leper we were the infected we were dead in our trespasses and sins and Jesus comes and he touches us and not only does he not become defiled we become alive and clean and if he could do that for a leper an infected woman and a dead girl he can surely do that for you. Second Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse in all of Scripture. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He went outside the camp for me. 
that I could stand in the presence of a holy God, that God could be present in my life at all times, and so that I could learn to obey what God has spoken. I will often close a funeral service with an ironic blessing that Aaron gave to the people. Do you know it? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. You've heard of this? The only way for that blessing to be mine is if Jesus bears our iniquity. If he bears our sin. In order for me to hear the Lord bless you and keep you, the sinless Son of God must hear the Lord curse you and cut you off. In order for me to hear the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, Jesus must hear the Lord turn his face away from you and give you no mercy but full judgment. You must bear my wrath and have no peace. Cut off from my presence. You must bear their reproach so that they can be made clean. He made him who knew no sin, sin for us. He went outside the camp for me. And I want to go out to those outside the camp who are defiled and tell them they don't have to stay there anymore. My dad's funeral, they sang his favorite song. It's called Thanks to Calvary. I don't live there anymore. You don't need to stay outside the camp. We can come in because Jesus bore our uncleanness, our impurity, our defilement. That's how he did it. And we can say, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for severe grace. Stuff that looks so hard on the outset, but we see your kindness in the dark clouds. We see your pastoral care of your people through difficult obedience. Thank you that we can learn of your holiness and your presence and the value of it. Thank you that what you demand you supply. The ability to obey. And thank you that Jesus is the one who bears our reproach. 
our impurity, our defilement outside the camp so that we can dwell with you. Lord, there may be people here right now who are living outside that camp of your presence. And my prayer is that you would call them to your son. That they would thoroughly repent of their sin, which is thoroughly a gift from you. That they would embrace Jesus Christ through faith. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And that they would be filled with a desire to obey you no matter what the cost. Thank you that you do not leave us outside the camp, but you sent Christ there so that we may live in fellowship with you. And as in a moment we take these elements, I pray that you would bring us into a beautiful remembrance of that truth. May we be grateful people today as the writer of Hebrews tells us we ought in that last verse. I pray that as we examine our hearts right now, as you commanded us to do, that we would come to you in humility, that we would allow you to be that great physician who points out the sickness and anything that could be off between us and you and our brother and sister. And may we turn away from that. May we make it right. And may we enjoy this table, this remembrance of you in a way that would bring you glory and strengthen us for today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.